Well, good morning. I uh, had thought about coming in my pajamas for solidarity's sake, but I didn't think anyone would take me seriously if I did that. So here I am. Um, I wanted to say a few things to the kids that are seated with their parents um, before we get into our text this morning. Um, Anna and I were watching uh, Frozen 2 the other day. We're a little behind in our <laughs> current events and movies, so forgive us for that. But there's a song in uh, one of the early songs called Some Things Never Change. And as I was listening to that and reflecting on it, I was reminded of the passage in Hebrews, right, where it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the midst of so much uncertainty in your lives, right, schools closed, you can't see friends, you can't see family, uh, you can't go to some of your favorite places. Um, that's one thing that never change, changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the same Jesus who we worship now. And he, when he was uh, doing his ministry on earth, he welcomed children to come to him so that he could pray for them and bless them. And so I want to remind you or let you know that Jesus welcomes you to come to him with your sadness, with your disappointment, uh, with anger that you may have. He welcomes you to come to him as he welcomed children when he was on earth. So... I hope that that's an encouragement for you, that Jesus has not changed. The Jesus you learned about in your Sunday school classes here is the same one that you can still approach today. So let me pray for us as we move into our text this morning. Lord Jesus, you are sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and over all things. Lord, I pray this morning, as our song has reminded us and as the prophet Isaiah said that we may behold the king in all his beauty. Lord, help us today as we read your word to do that, that we may behold you in a new way today. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray that you would move in our hearts by your spirit to see who you are in a deeper way this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we mentioned, today, of course, is Palm Sunday. Right, it's the last Sunday of Lent, in case anyone um, had forgotten the church calendar or even the day of the week. It is Sunday, in case you've forgotten. So Lent isn't something that we talk about much. Uh, we remember Advent, right? That's a popular time in our church calendar. We know that Advent starts four Sundays before Christmas. We sing familiar songs to commemorate it. We uh, light the Advent candles at church and at home. The most that we usually hear about Lent is, or something related to Lent, is Mardi Gras, which actually is connected to Lent, and that happens the, that's the day before Lent officially begins. So traditionally, Lent is associated with fasting or depriving ourselves of some small pleasure or indulgence for about 40 days. And so that's television, food of some kind, or something else. And the idea is that we turn away from that thing that has distracted us and we turn back to God. Uh, there's a funny post in light of our current situation in our world that's been circulating on social media that said, I honestly hadn't planned on giving up quite this much for Lent. Uh, <laughs> so that seems true in so many ways. Um, now, I'm not here to argue for observing Lent. I think there's good reasons to do it. I think there's good reasons not to do it. 
But I find it interesting that observing Lent is not really spoken up, uh, spoken about among evangelicals. Uh, a survey done a little while ago said that around 30% of evangelicals observe it. Uh, I actually heard it Uh, about Lent much more when I was growing up in a Presbyterian church. So we occasionally had Ash Wednesday services to commemorate the beginning of Lent. We talked about the tradition of giving things up. Uh, Undoubtedly, I think some of our aversion to Lent has to do with us wanting to um, distance ourselves from Roman Catholic practices. And uh, some of us may be also concerned about taking fasting to extremes. Although in my experience, to be honest, I don't think evangelicals have a problem with too much fasting. Uh, Lent, though, on a serious note, Lent and fasting in general can bring up the uncomfortable issue of giving things up. And in all honesty, how much we don't want to give things up, even temporarily, even just for 40 days. So along those lines, our passage this morning talks about sacrifice. Now, we probably don't associate sacrifice with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Uh, We usually save that for Good Friday. But John's account, which we read earlier, makes very clear what Jesus' entry into Jerusalem means. So we're going to see that John focuses on two areas this morning. So the first is Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king, but as a different kind of king. Second, we will see what his kingship involves. So our text today is out of John 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. Uh, I'm going to just read uh, verses 12 through 19 first, and I'm going to save verses 20 through 26 for later. So John chapter 12, verse 12, says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So we want to first look at Jesus entering Jerusalem as the king, but a different kind of king. So verses 12 through 13 tells us that the crowds, uh, the crowd waved palm branches. So in the triumphal entry in the other gospels, the, the authors tell us that the crowd waved branches, but only John actually mentions what kind of branches, that they were palm branches. So why is he so specific? I mean, why does it matter? Well, palm branches were used as a national symbol by Jews. Uh, Over 150 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, Simon Maccabeus had expelled the Syrians from Jerusalem, which gave the Jews political freedom. He was then subsequently welcomed into Jerusalem with songs, praises, and palm branches, celebrating the Jewish triumph over their enemies. The palm branches show here that the Jews were heralding Jesus as their conquering king or their, their soon-to-conquer king with their use of palm branches. 
Now, if the palm branches aren't enough for us to see how the crowds view Jesus, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So the crowd explicitly identifies Jesus as the king. Now, what they probably mean by this is he, they expected him to be the long-awaited Messiah who would come and deliver them from their Roman rulers and bring them political freedom, just as Simon Maccabeus had done. So even though Jesus is the king, he's not the kind of king people expected. Now, many of us know this. We've heard the triumphal entry preached before. Uh, but I want to look a little deeper at how John portrays Jesus' kingship based on his actions here. So I want to look back at verses 14 and 15, where it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, some here argue that Jesus actually rejects the proclamation of him as king because he rides on a donkey rather than on a horse. However, I think that Jesus actually accepts and even participates in their proclamation of him as king. So he agrees with the crowd that he is the king. Now, I primarily think this because he rides on a donkey, which might sound odd to some of you, because we often view the donkey as a lowly animal. But in the ancient world, donkeys were actually symbols of royalty. So uh, one example of this, there's actually countless examples we could look at. Uh, Ken Way, who teaches at Talbot, wrote a book on this, in case you have a lot of interest in donkeys. So it's called Donkeys in the Biblical World. Um, But one example from the Old Testament is 1 Kings 1, where Solomon, when he's uh, riding to be anointed as king, rides on a donkey, interestingly enough. So uh, Ken Way has an interesting quote, I think that's particularly funny and fits here, but he identifies donkeys as a symbol of royalty when he writes, the donkey is, so to speak, the Mercedes-Benz of the biblical world. So yeah, so Jesus riding on a donkey actually shows that he sees himself as king. And w- w- the, while he accepts the title of king, though, John wants to s- John wants us to see that Jesus is a king of a different order than the crowd expected. So their proclamation of him as king was full of nationalistic expectations of political freedom, right? Just they were thinking of Simon Maccabeus liberating them from their overlords. But John wants us to understand Jesus's action by his quotation from Zechariah 9. So when he mentions, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, that actually comes from Zechariah 9 in the Old Testament. So the context of Zechariah 9, if you read the whole chapter, it speaks of the coming king defeating his enemies, bringing in peace to the nations, and extending his reign to the ends of the earth. The king's coming also leads to the establishment of the blood of God's covenant with his people that leads to release for the prisoners. The king, though, in Zechariah 9 does not come in order to conquer because the donkey he rides in in Zechariah and then also in John is not just any donkey, but it's a, the word specifically refers to a purebred male donkey. Now, I realize I'm talking about donkeys way more than you probably care about, Um, but this is significant for this text at least. So a purebred male donkey might mean nothing to you, but again, in the ancient world, a purebred male donkey is the royal mount associated with peace rather than with conquest. 
So when Jesus rides on a purebred male donkey, he shows that he's not coming to bring war, but he is coming to bring peace. And so while we overlook the significance of the donkey, it actually helps us to understand Jesus's mission better. And we do see that Jesus will accomplish what Zechariah 9 spoke of. He will defeat his enemies, but not Rome. He would defeat the greatest enemies that humanity would ever know, which is sin and with death. His reign will extend to the ends of the earth, and it's already begun to do so. So the seminary I teach at has students from 20 countries all over Asia who have come to know Jesus, and so his reign has extended to the ends of the earth. And Jesus will establish God's covenant with his people, but it's through Jesus's blood, and it will release them from their captivity, but not their captivity to Rome, their captivity to sin. So Jesus comes as a king of a very different sort, and Zechariah 9 helps us to make sense of the nature of Jesus's kingship. He comes to extend his reign, but not through war, but through peace. Jesus is the king of the whole world, and his kingly authority extends well beyond external interests, but his kingly authority extends into the internal and inward nature of his servants. So it extends outward, and it also extends inward. Verse 16 further indicates that Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, it was not understood by the disciples until after, and John says, he was glorified. Now, Jesus' glorification throughout the gospel refers to his death primarily, and also his resurrection and ascension. Jesus' glory is connected to his ultimate act of service and humiliation in his death on the cross. But the question is, so why did the disciples not understand this? John actually has made clear to us earlier in his gospel. In John chapter 7, he says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not be poured out until Jesus has died and been resurrected. So it was only when God, by his Spirit, removed the spiritual blindness from the disciples' eyes that they could understand the true nature of Jesus' kingship. It was after, it was only after Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice that they saw his power and his glory. It's like the second verse in the song we just sang, that as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, that is when they beheld the king in his beauty. Only then could they understand Jesus' action in the triumphal entry through the lens of Zechariah 9. Verses 17 through 19 then conclude the triumphal entry by having the Pharisees identify that the whole world is going after Jesus. I'm going to return to this idea in just one second uh, in our next uh, passage. I want to conclude at least this portion of the triumphal entry by showing that Jesus has entered Jerusalem as the king, but as one commentator notes, even when he accepts the title of king, Jesus is fulfilling a kingship of an entirely different order. What his disciples and the crowd did not realize that day is that Jesus's triumphal entry was for the purpose of death and seeming defeat. A very different kind of king arrives in Jerusalem and he would come and offer the world a kind of kingdom that they had never seen before. He did not enter to acquire power but was heading toward a coronation that involved not a throne or not a a golden throne, 
but a coronation that involved a cross. So Jesus, uh, John rather, first focuses on the kind of kingdom that, Je- or kind of king that Jesus is. He is the king who enters to bring peace, to defeat death through his own death. The second focus of the passage is on what Jesus' kingship involves. What is the nature of his kingship? And for that, I want to turn to verses 20 through 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So John identifies here that some Greeks appeared to see Jesus. So this is what builds off of verse 19, right? Where the Pharisees say the whole world was going after Jesus. And in the appearance of the Greeks, we see that the whole world has indeed come to see Jesus. So what happens next is a little confusing, right? So the Greeks go to Philip, then Philip goes to Andrew, and then they both go to Jesus with the Greeks' request. But you'll notice here that Jesus actually doesn't answer the Greeks' request, Right? Instead, when he hears that the Greeks want to see him, it leads him to declare that the hour of his death has come. Or his hour has arrived, at least. So throughout the gospel, in terms of the hour, Jesus has, has said that it's not yet his hour. So he said this all the way back in chapter 2. But here he finally indicates that his hour has arrived. And again, it's the hour for him to be glorified, namely for him to die to be resurrected and exalted. This is a strange paradox for us that the place where Jesus is glorified is the place of the cross. So two questions remain here though for us. So the first one is, why does Jesus not grant the Greeks' request to see him? It seems odd that Jesus wouldn't allow them to see him and talk to them. And, And the second question we have here is, why does their request lead him to declare that his hour has come. That doesn't seem to make too much sense, at least from what we see here immediately. Both of these questions, though, I think can be understood or answered by understanding an Old Testament figure that John connects Jesus with over and over again throughout his gospel, but he doesn't quote until a few verses after this. And this figure from the Old Testament is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, who John repeatedly connects Jesus to in his gospel. So to learn more about the servant, I want to look at one of the passages. So there's four passages about the servant in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then 52 and 53. 52 and 53, I think, immediately connect with this passage. So I want to read the first part of this. So Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, we learn this about the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So Isaiah 52, 13 begins this final passage in Isaiah about the servant by speaking of the exaltation of the servant. But then the passage moves on to talk about his suffering and his death. And then it returns at the end in 53, 10 through 12 to speak of the success of his mission and his glorification and his vindication. So this final passage about the servant emphasizes two great contrasts, the servant's humiliation, but also his exaltation and the contrast between what the people thought about him and what was truly the case about the servant. So I'm going to explain that here. So the appearance and form of the servant in verse 14, right? They say his appearance was marred beyond that of humankind. It leads to a misunderstanding about his identity and his mission. People see his marred appearance as proof of God's rejection and judgment on him. But those who look back on his ministry, right? So they, they observed his ministry. They saw that he was marred and they thought he had been rejected by God. But then as they reflect back on his ministry, they come to a different conclusion. They realize that the suffering and death that they observed are not a punishment by God, but they're part of God's purpose to deal with their sin. So verse 15 identifies those who look back on this, this uh, ministry of the servant as the nations and as kings. So it tells us what the nations previously misunderstood, they now perceive, they now understand. They see what they had missed before about the servant. But the question remains for us is, okay, well, what enables the nations to better understand the servant? Why did they have a better understanding of him after he died? Well, again, we see this when we look through Isaiah 40, chapters 40 through 55, that Isaiah has told us the nations are spiritually blind. They're unable to perceive who God is and what he is doing. And they're spiritually blind because of their sin has separated them from God. And it's the servant's suffering and death which removes the blindness from the people. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says this, and this is the nations looking back, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him to be punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So when they saw the servant's ministry, this is what they thought was going on. But this is what they then realized. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The punishment for sin that the nations and the people rightly deserved was poured out on the servant. And it's the servant's suffering and death which heals their blindness and allows them to see that far from being rejected by God, the servant was glorified and vindicated as a result of his suffering and death on behalf of others. He took on their punishment that he did not deserve, but they did. And so as a result of his death, Isaiah 53.10 tells us, the righteous one, the servant, makes many to be righteous. But the important point here is the nations are only enabled to see this after the servant's death. His death is what removes their blindness so that they can see 
what his mission was actually about. Okay, so again, the question, what does this have to do with the Greeks in John? Well, we get our answers to our questions when we see Isaiah 52 and 3 here. Jesus proclaims that his hour has arrived because the nations have now come to see him. Right, just as the nations in Isaiah came and saw the servant's ministry, they saw his suffering and his death, the Greeks have arrived, the nations have arrived to see Jesus. So that means that his suffering and his death has to take place next. One of the other passages about the servant in Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, it says that the servant's ministry and mission is to Israel and then to the nations, and then his ministry is over. And so now that Jesus has reached the nations, he knows that his ministry is at an end. All that is left for him is to die. So this is why, this answers our second question, this is why the coming of the Greeks lead Jesus to say his hour has come. But the question still then is, why does Jesus ignore their request to see him? And again, if we have Isaiah in mind, we can see this. Jesus knows that just like the servant in Isaiah, right, that's who he is, for the Greeks to understand who he is spiritually, he must die first. Remember, we have just read in verse 16 that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing in the triumphal entry until after his death and his resurrection. And it's the same for the Greeks, that for them to see him, Jesus knows that he has to die on their behalf, bearing their sins on himself so that they can have their spiritual blindness removed. So if Jesus had accepted their request, they wouldn't truly be able to understand who Jesus is. So understanding the connection to Isaiah 52 and 53 here helps us realize why Jesus doesn't answer their request and why he says it's now his hour to die. And we also see through Isaiah the nature of Jesus' kingship. He is the king who bears the sins of others on himself. He is a king of a different order. Jesus continues in verse 24 where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus here is using a familiar agricultural illustration to show the results of his death. He connects his death with the life that springs from his death, right? For a seed to be effective, to do what a seed is intended to do, it must die. Right? Otherwise, it just remains there alone. So just as fruit cannot spring into existence without the death of the seed, so also the Son, Jesus, must die for the children of God to come into existence. Right? So if you don't know Jesus this morning, he took on your sin, he, that desire that you have to live your own way without anyone telling you what to do, he took that on himself so that you can be reconciled to God and join his family. It's his death that opens the way for the children of God to come into existence. And again, we see this connects with the servant in Isaiah 53, that because of the servant's suffering unto death, it results in many becoming righteous, many coming to know God. So Jesus concludes his address by showing that his life and death establish a pattern for his followers. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So if Jesus died to make other followers, then his own followers have a pattern or example to live by. Jesus gave up his life to serve others and his followers must do the same. So if you fight to keep this life and hold on to the things of this world, you will ultimately lose them. Jesus calls his followers to lay down their lives just as he did. But in giving up their lives, his followers find true life. So we see here the nature of Jesus's kingship. He's a king who suffers on behalf of others to bring life to them. So in the triumphal entry, we see a very different kind of king arrives in Jerusalem and he would offer the world a kind of kingdom that they had never seen before. Second, we saw that his kingship involves his death, his sacrifice for others, and his followers are to imitate his example. So that means that we too, as his followers, are called to live lives of sacrifice. That's the nature of Jesus's kingdom. Right? It's not one where we acquire power, but we give of ourselves for the sake of others. So one of the areas over the last uh, few years that I've been convicted about is how I don't like sacrifice. Right? The last three years for us of living overseas has been hard in many ways, and there's been a lot of sacrifices that we've been called to make. But my heart is so resistant to many of them. Uh, I don't want to do them. One missionary wrote this, um, and this resonated with me, and I think what she says here applies to all of us, although the specifics might not. But she says this, uh, You see somewhere along the way, I believed I was entitled to certain rights. The right to breathe clean air, to live in an easy-to-maintain and lovely home, to blend into a crowd without constantly standing out, to raise my kids in a healthy and easy-to-navigate environment, to celebrate holidays and life events with my extended family. I desired an easy life. So I read this for the first time a few years ago and I've kept coming back to it because it voices so many of my feelings because I see how much I want an easy life. I see how much I worship comfort and convenience, right? I want things to be easy. I want to be comfortable, but I didn't realize how much those things have gripped my heart until they're taken away. And I think if we're honest, I, I don't think I'm peculiar in this way. Maybe I am. But I think if we're honest, most of us worship those things as well. And if we we're, we're struggle to see whether we do, here's a, a way we can picture this, right? Picture being isolated in your home right now, like many of you are, so that's easy. But picture the internet and cell phones don't work. Gone. Or, if that doesn't help enough, picture that Amazon is not delivering packages anymore. Now, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think mass chaos would ensue if that happened. No internet, no Amazon. But I think it's true. I think when we start stripping away some of these things that make our lives so easy, we realize how much we worship those things also. Paul touches on this in a, in a little different way, but um, he says in 1 Timothy 6 that we're to do good, we're to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share and he says this, he says, so that, the reason we're supposed to do those things is so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. Right? His statement is similar to what Jesus is saying here, that if we want to keep our lives, we must give them up. 
Paul's statement always, it, it's hit me for a long time because as much as I want comfort and convenience, I want that which is truly life. In my deepest desires to have, have life and comfort and convenience are not that. They're not truly life. At least they're not the life that Jesus primarily calls us to. Or he calls us to sacrifice. And for some of us, when we think of sacrifice, we immediately think of money, right? And I think that's part of sacrifice. Last week, Jason had mentioned this uh, in his sermon as well, that many of us are going to be getting money as part of the, the recent stimulus or however you want to call it, package that the government passed. And for some of us, we might not need that money, uh, but there are others who do, so we can look for ways that we can give that away. For others, when we think of sacrifice, we might think of time, right? And in these days, that might mean we need to, to bring people food, which I've seen so many of us from this church doing. Uh, it might mean that we help someone, we sacrifice time to help someone find a job, right? So if someone doesn't know how to, to interview well, we can teach them interview skills or um, teach them a new skill if they need to find a job. I hope, so I don't think those are the only two things, but I hope that living in this time where we are now brings to mind things that we can do without or ways that we can live more simply and ways we can be thinking about how to help others. But I want to say this, uh, sacrifice isn't just about giving away money or time. I think one thing I, I, I worry about when we talk about application and how does this apply, we think, okay, I just need to do a few more things, right? So sacrifice, I need to just give some money away. I need to just give a little bit more time to something. And, and I don't, I mean, ultimately, yes, I hope we do some of those things, but ultimately sacrifice in, in this passage that Jesus is calling to, it's a life of sacrifice, right? Jesus came, he says in Mark, not to be served, but to serve, Right? That was his whole life and how he lived his entire life. And so more than just giving up things in general, Jesus sacrificed so that others may be brought into God's family. One example of this that's a, a life or a lifestyle of sacrifice that I've been particularly challenged by is a group of pastors in Louisville. So the church that we were members of when we lived there, um, it's, it's part of a group of churches that are planted all over the city. Uh, so I think there's five or six at this point, and they're all in different parts of, of Louisville. And one of those churches is in uh, a rough part of town. There's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of crime and drugs, so it's not an easy place to live. And the pastors of that church chose to live in that neighborhood, to lead a movement of and to lead community revitalization, to be a light in that community and to help transform it. It hasn't been easy um, so the missions pastor who we know uh, from that church a little bit better, he, um, he's had one night, he had the tires, all four tires of his car stolen in front of his house. So he woke up the next morning. Uh, it was kind of humorous when he told us, but it's also kind of crazy that he woke up the next morning and all four tires of his car were gone. Uh, he was mugged at one point. Uh, so it isn't easy, right? And he could live somewhere else, right? Louisville is not a big city, right? So he could live a little farther away, and still have an easy commute to church. But his family chooses to be in this neighborhood to help bring life to that community. Other people from that church have made that same decision. So many uh, who attend there have intentionally moved into the neighborhood to be a light to those around them. 
right? To reach their neighbors, to share the gospel with them, to care for their needs. So that's an entire reorientation of one's life around a specific purpose. So what would it look like for us to do that? To reorient our lives so that we might reach those who most need Jesus. Now, I think it can be hard for us to reorient our lives like that because we aren't convinced that it's worth it. I mean, when I most desire comfort and convenience, I, it's because I think those are better than whatever I gain in sacrifice. And I hope that this time of unexpectedly having so many things stripped away from us will allow us to, to consider ways we might reorient toward more complete kingdom living. I've had so many things taken away. And I know it might seem kind of tone deaf for me to, to talk about sacrifice. But in many ways, I think this is the opportune and the ideal time because we've had so many things stripped away already. So what are ways, what are things that we can do without? What are ways we can live more simply so that we can live more kingdom-minded? Jesus came as the king of a very different kind. His exaltation occurred on the cross. The place of his glory was also the place of his humiliation. But it is through his self-sacrificial act that he gave life to others. In sacrifice, we find true life. Not that which this world calls life, but that which is truly life. And our sacrifices are for the purpose of giving life to others. And it's the spirit who enables us to do that. I want to say this. Maybe, maybe you're watching this morning uh, because a friend posted this on Facebook, so you were just curious and you clicked on it. And, you know, you've watched the news, read the news, and you're just kind of tired of a lot of the political posturing that's happening on both sides because you think that everyone's goal is either to, uh, to stay in power or to gain power. And I want to say it very clearly, that's not the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Right? He gave his life. He, he came to serve, to sacrifice himself for others. Right? An example is in the third century, uh, a plague broke out in the Roman world and Christians were encouraged by their leaders to care for the sick. And for some, it cost their lives. Now, I'm not necessarily making uh, a claim on what you should do now um, because I think it's a complex world in many ways. But I think the point of of what we learn from church history there is Jesus's kingdom is one of sacrifice for others. And that can look a lot of different ways. Tolkien uh, captures this idea of sacrifice well. I think how we have to give up something we desire and something, and sometimes even something we love, but we do it for the benefit of others. So he says this, this is the quote I'm going to pull from Return of the King. So it's the last book of Lord of the Rings. If any of you are worried, I'm spoiling it. I mean, the movies came out like 15 years ago and the book was 50 years ago, 1950, so 70. So I feel like it's on you if you uh, haven't seen that yet. Um, At the end of the book though, Frodo makes clear that he must leave his home even though he has given up so much for it. So here's the quote from Tolkien. But said Sam, and tears started in his eyes, I thought you were going to enjoy the Shire too for years and years after all you've done. Frodo says this, so I thought too once, but I've been too deeply hurt, Sam. 
I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. It must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger. Someone has to give them up, lose them, so others may keep them. On Palm Sunday, a different kind of king arrived in Jerusalem. And he offers the world a kind of kingdom people had never seen before. A kingdom where life, where true life is found in sacrifice. May God open our eyes and empower us to live lives characterized by sacrifice so that we can take hold of that which is truly life and give of ourselves so that others might find life as well. Let's pray. Lord, you came to offer a kingdom that is different than anything we see now. Lord, empower us to see the worth of sacrificing ourselves for the gain of others. Lord, I know how much I worship other things. I want to be comfortable. I want my life to be easy. So Lord, forgive me when I cling to those things more than I hold on to you. And to what you say is, is the value of your kingdom. So Lord, help us. Help us give of ourselves freely for other people. Help us to take hold of that which is truly life. Lord, may we be challenged and may we be encouraged by your example. Help us to think of ways that we can live lives like this. So that people notice that we live differently than than the rulers and authorities that are in our world today. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.